This is Jared Svensson. And this is Joey Svensson, the pastor. And welcome to The Pastor With No Answers. I mean, you do have answers. Uh, ha, ha, ha. I kind of thought Jesus had all the answers, Jared. You know what I mean. No, I don't, Jared. What do you mean? There are certain things you know to be true. You need to say that. No, I, you know, Jared, this conversation that we're actually airing here in this episode was just a couple months ago, and you and I have pretty much totally changed our mind on this whole issue, so... I would say it's pretty correct to say the pastor with no answers. Whatever, man. All right. Let's do this. Let's do this. All right. Let's do it. All right. So this is the pastor with no answers where my brother and I run the show and we're pretty excited about this new podcast. It's on the the Bad Christian Network of Podcasts. You can go to badchristian.com. You got Matt's Break It Down. You got the Free Sex Podcast and obviously the Bad Christian Podcast. Well, this podcast, Pastor With No Answers, will basically each week be talking usually to some fellow Christians about some theology and world and culture issues, and we're going to try to pick people that disagree with each other. You know what I'm saying? Why, why would we do that, Jared? We want to get a variety of perspectives. Yeah, yeah, because I've met so many Christians, and it's almost like they will write another Christian off if they don't believe a certain way. And honestly, with certain issues, I would do the same thing. I don't want to get into those issues right now, but, uh, well, I'll I'll say one of them was if if someone said a a curse word, I'll never forget being at a Christian uh, rock concert and out in the parking lot, I was talking to the drummer and he said a cuss word, and I was like, oh my gosh, I guess this drummer's not a Christian. So that's a very, very immature um, example, but, you know, take it a little further if, you know, if someone says, hey, I don't believe in what the Bible says about a certain issue because I don't read it the same way you do, a lot of times we're quick to write somebody off. Um, and, and I think, so, too, we oftentimes find ourselves living in a bubble. And so I think this podcast can help us burst those bubbles and at least challenge yeah. us to, to really think about our positions. You know, we're not saying you yeah. should abandon your position, but at least think about it at a deeper level. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, one thing is uh, Jared and I both unashamedly would would say that for sure we believe that, that Jesus and what we read about in the Bible and the words that he says in the Bible and all that stuff is, is true. Um, now, I would go so far as to say that because we can't prove it, there's a possibility that we're wrong. I just live and operate in a way where I'm pretty sure that I'm right. Well, are you, Jared, are you comfortable with saying, I believe in Jesus, but I could be wrong? No. No. You're not. Tell me why. I, I just, I guess I realize how fallible my mind is. And so I think God, I, this is the hardest question in the world to answer because, yeah, it's like, <laughs> it's like saying my entire worldview, my entire being could be wrong. I'm just not willing to say that. No. Okay. There's no well, doubt the, in my the mind. Truth, the truth is it could be wrong. Okay. That, that's, <laughs> that's true, but I, I'm not willing to entertain that thought. So logically, okay. yeah, there's a logical possibility that I'm wrong, but from my worldview, I'm not going to – no, you mean, you mean about the core essentials, God being the creator of the universe, Jesus being my savior, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes. So I have yes. no room in my, my, my thought or my worldview for that being wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and to make it clear to you before you think your your little bro is wasting away in heresy, I true I, I mean I guess I would go so far as to say ninety nine point nine 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 percent sure I believe Jesus is Lord and He's Savior and we need him. I just think that if if it is true to say but I could be wrong, then okay, So is there I could So be is wrong. there anything that you have a hundred percent uh you're a hundred percent sure of in life? Uh, I'm a hundred percent sure that I'm not a hundred percent sure of anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the answer is no, right? Uh, yeah, I guess. Especially, uh, I mean, you've heard Toby's oh crazy gosh. stuff. Like, to- to- <laughs> all right. So, yes, you, you know, uh, you know, Mama, our, our Mama, and I don't have to say Mama Jean around you because we only have one Mama. So, with her and her dementia, Toby was walking out 
of work today and I was sitting outside and he actually talked to me and referred to me as Mama Jean and pretended to be Joey Svensson. He said, don't you think it's possible right now that you think that you're Joey, but you're actually Mama Jean and I'm Joey. And then he went on to say, and I truly believe that is a possibility, that you could be Mama Jean right now thinking that you're Joey, but it's actually a delusion that you're just living in that day. That's, that's so messed up. And, and to me, that, that's, that's skepticism taking, taken to an extreme degree because you're living in a world that, that really – you have, you have nothing certain. There's nothing certain in life. And to me, it's a very scary, yeah. foreign, weird, creepy place. So it could be more of me being fearful of that. But to me, I just it seems bizarre to even entertain those ideas. What practical purpose yeah. does that serve? So maybe I'm more of a pragmatist. I'm thinking that, okay, I'm holding on to ideas that will actually get me from point A to point B. So if I start entertaining these weird, bizarro scenarios, I'm not going to get from point A to point B. So I guess it's fun. Yeah. It's fun to talk about that. It's, it's fun to try to wrap your head around that. But I think it's just that. It's just fun. It's just an exercise. I don't. I really don't think there's any re- connections to reality. But that's just me. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing he entertains, and uh, he said that he thinks that there's a possibility that everybody that does exist, they're living in their own personal, unique world. So basically, you're talking to me, but I'm not. I'm not really real, or vice versa. I'm talking to you. You're not real. So kind of like the Truman Show, except. They're not actors. It's a figment of, or, or it's it's a staged deal from God, and basically we're all in like this test tube of reality to just see how we'll react. So kind of like the Matrix, right? Ma- we're all plugged into some yeah, kind of so. like, uh, you know, s- surreal, or I shouldn't say surreal, but like an alternate reality, a yeah. virtual reality, yeah. I should say. Okay. Yeah. Even though I never really truly understood the Matrix because I'm a moron. But, yeah, you're probably right. All right, so we're going to be joining uh, two guests here to talk about basically whether or not there's room for universalism amongst Christians. In other words, hey, can someone say, hey, I'm a Christian, I believe in the Bible, and yet I also believe that everyone goes to heaven. Now, the irony of this episode is that it was recorded, oh, a couple months ago. And since then, I would say that Jared and myself have both both drastically changed our points of view. Not that we are now universalists, but our friend Dan says that he is either a universalist or an annihilationist. And uh, both of us were pretty much like, yeah, we disagree with that. But I would say at this point in our faith journey, uh, Jared, or I'll speak for myself, but I would say that I lean a little more towards annihilationism in the sense that I do believe in hell. I just believe that hell destroys people uh, in a sense and puts them out of their misery once and And I all. agree with that. Um, I think that once I started thinking more deeply about scripture and I, and I see words like destruction and perish, I mean, in, in a true, real sense meaning of those words, it means, perish means that's it. You're, 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 you're done. Right. So to me, it makes sense that our immortality is conditioned upon our faith in Christ. So God gives us our life, and then once we die separated from him, we lose that life. But, but through right. Christ, we have eternal life. So to me, that makes a lot of sense. And I think also... For a lot of people, that seems to be more just and more loving. Now, I personally, I'm, I'm okay with God doing whatever God wants to do. And that's kind of a dumb thing to even say because he's God. But So it was never a deal breaker for me. The idea of eternal conscious torment was never a deal breaker. I accepted right. that because I thought that's what the Bible taught. But now yeah. I really do believe the Bible teaches annihilationism. So I'm not going where where my heart wants to go. I'm actually believing that the Bible teaches that. Because looking at those those verses... With you know interpreting perish and destruction and things like that from that lens, it makes more sense to me. So yeah, and I would say I would say for me it's both. I feel like that's where my heart's been going for right or wrong. My heart is my heart. I've always believed in hell again because that's what the Bible is taught. But my heart has never been able to fully embrace it. Which I don't know if we we should embrace. Like oh man, I just love the fact that people are going to be in eternal conscious torment. But I've just always, I've had a problem with it to where my way of dealing with it was more or less putting it out of my mind and just not thinking about it because I didn't want to deal with that sort of thing. So, But Jared, I will say this, man, since you believe in it, now I truly believe in it because I take your words (laughs) um, like 
more serious than like oh Jesus well i appreciate words. that thank so, you yeah but man, i got but i gotta say too i mean i don't want our audience to misunderstand i mean i st- my my viewpoint in the original in this podcast episode was that there was a literal hell and i still believe that and i still believe right. that those that are unrepentant and separated from God will go to hell and they will be destroyed in hell. And I think there's even room to say that that destruction process may reflect the severity of their sins. So Hitler may yeah. be destroyed for a longer period of time than your average Joe. Yeah. Okay, so I definitely believe yeah. that. So yeah, I don't, I don't want to dismiss the idea of hell because I think hell is very real. So yeah, ev- everybody's hearing you okay. fine. That <laughs> there's no there's no hell and everybody goes yeah. to heaven. All, everybody who doesn't I just, people that don't I even just believe. I'm very everybody's scared like, about being labeled as a heretic, man. So I'm going to cover my ass every episode. <laughs> All right, well, we have our guest here with us. Um, excited. I'm personally super excited about this conversation. Uh, glad to have Kerry back with us. And uh, he's a, a super good friend of a friend of mine. And, and hopefully he feels like he is becoming friends with us because uh, I feel the same way about him. And then we have Dan Coke on with us. A lot of you guys in the Bad Christian audience are very much so familiar with Dan. And we're happy to have him on here. He is uh, basically, uh, a friend of ours, lead singer and songwriter of Pacific Gold, and uh, just a super cool guy. And then, obviously, we are talking about the the possibility of universalism. So, as Christians, a lot of us, uh, I would say, most of us get the, the bulk of our beliefs from the Bible. So, taking the Bible and and taking all things considered, can universalism be an accepted belief? For Christians, and uh, does anybody want the first word? I'll throw it out there for grabs. I'll let Dan have the first word. Actually, I'm a little unsure what we mean by universalism because I, I think there's different meanings depending cool. on the context. Cool. I would say for for discussion purposes today, it simply means uh, that everybody goes to heaven because um, because of Christ's atoning blood, or just all paths lead to heaven. I think uh, how I'm taking it is because of what Jesus has done. So yeah, I think it's I think it's most helpful to use a general definition of Christian universalism, which is basically, in the end, Christ's sacrifice atones for all sin, and in the end, all human beings are reconciled to God through eternal life. Which, for depending on who you are, may or may not mean there is punishment. Before that happens, um, many Christians, like Rob Bell, for instance, believe that there is like a punishment period. Yeah. So, but just in the in the final analysis, it means that because of Christ's work on the cross, all creation is reconciled to God. Yeah, that's probably the best. Because if we go, all roads lead to heaven. I mean, none of us are going to say that. That would be a really right. boring conversation. Right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. All right. Well, Dan. What, what's your take on this? Okay, so I, I know that this is a casual vibe kind of podcast, but I actually wrote out my opening statement. I promise I will be more original from here on out. <laughs> but here we go. Do so, it, there's, so there's two questions. The first question is, can a Christian be a universalist? I think it's pretty obvious that they can, because the way that I would answer the question of what is a Christian is I would say it is, number one, somebody who affirms the Nicene Creed, and number two, someone who is committed in their life to living like Christ lived. Okay. Um, and so for me, like, there's nothing in the Nicene Creed about what kind of thing hell is and what kind of thing heaven is. It's just not a central claim of the gospel. And so for me, the idea that a Christian couldn't be a universalist feels just like way overreaching. Okay. Um, Christians can and do disagree on a whole host of issues, and so a lot want to say that if you disagree with them on some point on which they're particularly insistent, well, then you're not a Christian. But I think that logically that's kind of silly. Our level of confidence in any of our beliefs, the further we get from the central claims of the Nicene Creed, must go down. The confidence has to go down. And as our certainty level goes down, our open-handedness and our open-mindedness should go up. 
who, uh, here now I'm really just reading from my statement, the nature of salvation, who receives salvation, who is in and who is out, who are the sheep not of this flock, and what reconciles a human heart to its perfect creator, all seem very obviously to me to be areas outside our certain knowledge. We have some ideas that scripture gives us and that God tells us, but I think it's an overreach to claim perfect understanding of things like that. So we can and should do our best to come to a well-reasoned and prayerful understanding and live from that understanding. But the views we come to should be peppered with a pretty hefty dose of humility the further we get from the core claims of our faith. And then in the second question, is it true or not? Personally, I'm not sure if I think it's more likely that all humans will be saved in the end or if all those whose hearts reject God will be annihilated. For me, though, the classic eternal conscious torment view of hell feels very culturally conditioned rather than scriptural and also is morally and philosophically disgusting. I'm grateful that there exist alternatives that many brilliant and loving Christian thinkers have held since the origins of Christianity. And that concludes my opening statement, if it please the court. Bravo. Yes, bravo. Hey, and, and I gave you 45 extra seconds just because you're a good dude, man. Because I was on a roll. Yeah. Thank you. Definitely. Thank you, Jay. If it was matter, Toby, I would have been like, ah, 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 stop, stop. Yep. Completely yeah. stop. So. Uh, awesome. Well, I, man, I, I've already got questions for you, but we are going to we're going to hold back on that. Okay. And uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and take number two. I would uh, I I'll say with the concept of hell, it has been. I'm serious. I went through a good half decade, maybe, may, yeah, I, I would say a good five years, just toiling and toiling over and over and over, and I just because I couldn't believe it. I, I was like, this is true, but this is so hard. I just can't believe this would really happen. And I, what what healed my heart, and I really do believe it was a healing, is I was reading Mere Christianity, and uh, C.S. Lewis said, you know, uh, so God made a bunch of people, and the majority of them are apparently going to hell. And he said... Christians would be the, you know, we're, then our, our reaction is, okay, why would why would God do that? That's not right. Why didn't he just not make all these people that are going to go to hell? And he said that's where Christians go wrong is they use the mind that God has given them to question God. So it just put me in my place and it gave me peace too. It's like the mind I'm using to function, the mind I'm using for logic and rationale and all that stuff is given to me by God. I don't even have that on my own. So I could uh, relax and be like, okay, God, I'm wasting my time by trying to get answers here. I need to just trust and be a kid. Fast forward a good 15 years, and I would say I am a hopeful universalist. Uh, I, I would say that I guess uh, if I had to lean one way or another, I'd say it seems like the Bible says otherwise. But I'm hoping, I'm really hoping in the end that uh, when people die, they stand before God's throne. And not only does their tongue confess and their knees bow, but God doesn't say, okay, you confess and your knees bowed, now get out of my presence and go to hell, I hope he says, okay, come on in. Life was short. Uh, you, you spent it uh, horribly. You, you, know, you, you didn't turn towards me, but luck, you know, lucky for you, I'm a very gracious, loving, forgiving God. I created you. I've loved you since day one. That's what I hope. So that's my outlook. And we will pass the baton to Carrie. Wow, I didn't realize I was talking to, to two different people on this viewpoint. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> nice. Well, not, not exactly. No, not exactly. Joey's saying he's a hopeful universalist, but he thinks it's probably not true. I'm saying I am. I believe in either universalism or annihilationism, and okay. definitely not in eternal conscious torment. But I don't know which of the two are is more likely to be true. Uh, I'm going to say that neither of those are true, and that the traditional belief in eternal torment and non-universalism is definitely what the Bible uh, speaks to. Um, I, I kind of, I'll, I'll say I kind of agree with what you said at the beginning, Dan, that, that Christians can be Christians and believe all kinds of things. But 
I believe that that is something that, like what Paul, um, I forget which epistle he was writing, but he was talking, you know, you should have been moving on to the meat of the word, but you're still having to uh, eat off the milk of the word because they couldn't get past the foundations of the faith. And so there are definitely Christians out there who maybe they got saved in a Catholic church, maybe they got saved in the New Version Bible, or they've been saved a while, but they just haven't matured. And we can believe all kinds of things, but I believe that as you mature and as you sanctify, through the washing of the water of the Word, through reading your Bible, the Holy Spirit will guide you into truth, and you will come out more firm in doctrine and not as hopeful. Um, on uh, the viewpoint that God is just and merciful, that is definitely true. But we also know that God is just, and punish and sin cannot go unpunished. Did Christ die for all? Did he die for the elect? You know, these are questions you ask. It sounds like you have universalism on one side, and you have Calvinism on the other side, and then you have little old me right in the middle, which is the traditional, I wouldn't say it's the Arminian view, but it's definitely a non-Calvinistic view that the Bible uh, says that Jesus, his sacrifice is available to cover the sins of all, but people must choose to accept that sacrifice. Uh, I think you think of the rich young ruler, right? The Lord said, uh, sell all you have and follow me, and he couldn't do it. Um, was Jesus tempting him to do something he could never do? You know, God says he tempts no man with evil. So I, I don't believe Jesus in that case was tempting the rich young ruler. I think he really had the opportunity to make a choice, and he chose wrongly. And so I believe that Jesus' sacrifice is available to all, but you must accept his sacrifice in order to be saved, and I think the Bible is very clear on that. All right. Thank you. And we'll wrap this thing up with uh, my my favorite brother, Jared Svensson. Well, thank you, and I have to say that I'm on board with what Carrie said. Um, like Joey, it would be nice to think that God saves everyone. I just don't think if you read the Bible, you get that. Um, I mean, the Bible says plenty of things about God's wrath as a reaction to sin, so while God is loving, he's also a just God that has wrath. Um, the Bible and Jesus both speak of a hell as a place where some men will go upon death, uh, and their fire is not quenched, um, their worm does not die. So to me, that kind of precludes annihilationism. Um, John the Baptist tells us to repent. Jesus tells us to be born again. So it seems to me that if you don't repent and you're, and you're not born again, how are you going to experience eternal life with Jesus in heaven? Um, and then also thinking really deeply about this, I have certain questions. Like, if you are a universalist, what is the point of the Great Commission? What is the point of living a holy life? Who cares if we fall away from the gospel and enter a period of apostasy? Uh, or if you're a Calvinist. What's that? I said, or if you're a Calvinist. Kara, are you interrupting my brother's opening statement? All right, there's no way. I thought you kind of tried to jump in there too, so I was, I was following your heels. I apologize, Jared. Go ahead. That's all right. I'm, I'm, I'm messing with you, man. Go ahead, Jared. Is there a need for repentance? And then, lastly, like like Joey said, I really do believe if we really try to appeal to this notion of universalism, it's because we're, we're limited in our minds and we have an emotional, uh, we're emotionally drawn to this idea of everyone going to heaven. When in reality, I just don't see that case being made in the Bible. So it may be a very simple perspective on the Bible, but I just can't go any other way based on what I've read. And that concludes my my uh, little opening spiel. All right. Well, take take the boxing gloves off. We're going at it, man. We are going at it. So, uh, Carrie, I, I want to ask uh, – I'm sorry, not Carrie, Dan. I want to ask you, um, yeah. how, how, how do you deal – with the scriptures that that Jared said, as far as the worm never dies, uh, eternal conscious torment. I know there's one, and uh, I can't recall it at this, but there's definitely one in Thessalonians that is is pretty hardcore. I think it says eternal punishment. Like, what what do you do with those verses? Okay, I was actually um, I was sort of scrambling to look this up as you were going, so. That verse you quoted, uh, Jared, is from yeah. Mark 9. Yes. And Jesus says, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into Gehenna, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. And that's a quote from Isaiah 66. Right. So 
first of all, a couple things I would say. Well, I mean, I don't know how far to zoom out here. What we're I'm going to just start by zooming out, and then we can zoom back in. But what we're going to eventually come to here is a, is a very fundamental disagreement about what the Bible is and how it is to be read. Okay. Um, I know that that's where this is going to really end up for those wanting to get to the bottom of it. I, I fundamentally believe that proof texting does not work, in ter- meaning the Bible is not well suited for us to take verses that appear to express a proposition, pit them against each other that appear to express other propositions, and that if we found out the right mix of all those propositions, we would find a unified whole. Does that make sense? Isn't it like a systematic theology? Isn't that what that tries to do? I, yeah, so that's that's exactly my point. My, I would argue uh, with guys like Christian Smith um, that systematic theologies all differ precisely because the Bible is quite poor uh, at being able to be lined up like a puzzle like that. And so for me, I what I I think that a, a fair and honest, non-emotional look at the scripture, if you could be like Data from Star Trek, what you would come to is you would say, look, there are passages that appear to teach uh, universalism, there are passages that appear to teach annihilationism, and there are passages that appear to teach uh, eternal conscious torment. If you just take the pro- what appears to be the propositional truth from them, you get this contradiction. And so I think that what you end up having to do with all of the Bible is you have to interpret some passages in light of other passages. We totally do this all the time without thinking twice about it. Uh, we interpret tons of the Old Testament, the Torah, and the law in light of Jesus. And then we go, oh, the strict reading of this passage in Leviticus does not apply to us because of what Jesus has done. Or, I mean, like, it, it's all over the place. You know, we, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to speak in church, or a better example would be, women must cover their heads. Well, we interpret that in light of his other statements about the freedom of Christ, and that there's neither male nor female, Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, and we say, that must be a cultural condition, that doesn't apply to us at all time. I mean, it's a normal thing. It's it's a normal thing we do. Well, we interpret inter- scripture in light of other scripture. So my, my interjection here would be, is there a transcendentally correct way to read the Bible? Maybe we don't know what that is. There's not. Okay, so yeah. don't argue no, that it really is. Yeah. No, I, well, sorry. What I would say is this. The Bible just, there literally is no, there is no system that we can find that takes account of every proposition of every verse and lines them up accurately. For I'm going to go against that and say that uh, two Tim- Second Timothy 3.16 says all scripture, all scripture, not select passages, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, and of course for reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. So if Paul says doctrine? that scripture is inspired and profitable for doctrine, all scripture for doctrine, not for Profitable for teaching and rebuking. I mean, Paul does not say, like, dogma. I mean, he's not talking about He's talking about pastoral work. I definitely believe that the entire Bible is inspired by God and is usable for teaching, rebuking. I affirm every single thing that Paul affirms. It's a, it's a further step to say, therefore, it all fits into a rational system that we can prove using Scripture. I think those but are different claims. Does the Bible also say that God is not the author of confusion? I was just getting ready to say that. <laughs> First Corinthians 14.33. But why, right. why? I don't know what's so confusing. What's what's confusing? Because about, if you're saying there's there's no correct reading of the Bible, that's confusing. How do I read it? How do I approach it? That's yeah. Well, you. Yeah. I mean, so the the sort of the answer in the end ends up being for people who hold this a view like this ends up being something like this. It would be great, wouldn't it be great if the Bible were such that if we just opened it up and looked at it all objectively, that it would present a unified system of belief on every issue that it touches. And, and it, it just doesn't do that, right? Well, that's fine. That's what we disagree on. But I'm just saying, and I don't, I don't even really, I'm not trying to convince you guys of my point. I'm just saying that seems to me to be worth getting out there um, because maybe there are listeners who have already done their work on this question and do have a view. So if there are listeners who have really read a lot about this and thought about it, 
and they agree with either you or me on that issue, it might help give them a framework of where the rest of this is going to go. So we, right, don't so, need to, we don't need to argue about it. All right, so uh, that was last week, right? <laughs> yeah, let me uh, let me stop you right there. All right, so with 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 us having more of an understanding of where you're coming from with with the Bible and mm -hmm. how to read it. So yeah. when when you read Jesus's words of the worm never dies, weeping and gnashing of teeth and all of that, do you read yeah. that as well Jesus is talking about something different? Do you read that as the author miswrote, he didn't even say that? Do you read that as well through the years people added that to scare people into Christianity? I mean, how do you read those those verses? Um so and this is why one of the reasons that I don't that I don't land necessarily on either annihilationism or universalism is I just don't know enough about all of the exegesis and stuff. But I would say, I mean, first of all, I would emphasize that he says Gehenna, which is an actual valley outside of Jerusalem where bodies burned and other things burned um, physically. And obviously, he's not just talking about a specific place. I mean, he's using that as also a metaphor. So, I mean, I'm not really sure. I would say it's it's probably got to have something to do with any sort of existence that is away from God. I mean, I believe God to be the ground of all being and all goodness and every good gift. And so if you can imagine the opposite of the kingdom of heaven, a really good word for that is hell. And uh, so... I, you know, I'm not totally sure about that, um, but I, I I do think that Jesus said that. I don't. I'm not contesting. You know, oh, someone put those words into his mouth. I think that the gospels are quite reliable in giving us a picture of who Jesus was, what he did, and what he said. I have a, a lot of confidence in the gospel accounts. So just to be clear on that. Yeah. See, for me, so for me, when I see John three thirty six, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. To me, that's crystal clear. Yeah, but why Why does that have to necessarily mean uh, believe here on this earth? Why can't someone spend all eternity believing? And he, here's here's one example of a scripture that I think... Yeah, but who... Wait, 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 wait. Wait, wait, wait. But so who... So using your scenario, then who in the world does not believe the Son? What do you mean? Well, you're saying that... If it's okay, you're saying that the scenario is an eternal perspective where ultimately everyone believes in the Son eternally, but there's a but to that. And they're saying, he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. Is that just a, a empty statement? Well, we're, we're told right now that on this earth, Jesus has come to give life and give it to the fullest. I believe those who are not believing in Jesus right now do not have that life. So here's so Actually, Jesus said he came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. Right. Yeah, but also, so this is the this is an example of you know, we can pull a lot of texts out. You know, I can pull out here. Let me. I'll bring one. Here we go. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood. Mic drop. Right. All things. He's reconciled all of them. There we go. We've solved the problem. Of course, we haven't because you have your verse too. It doesn't. I just think it doesn't work that way. We can try and make it work that way, but then that's why we have ten thousand Protestant denominations because <laughs> it doesn't really go together. And here, here's another here's another verse that I've read one way, and and whether there's whether there's a hell or not, I I I now read this verse very differently, and that's the wide path that leads to destruction, the narrow path that leads to heaven. I believe there is a lot of Christians that are going to go to heaven that are on a wide path of destruction right now. That's the Christian dude that is is not repenting of his extramarital affair, or that's the female uh, that has horrible body issues and is anorexic and is thinking about killing herself tomorrow, but she has accepted the Lord and she's losing a spiritual battle. I believe there are Christians on the wide path that leads to destruction. I don't necessarily think that that passage has to mean all of those people are on this path to hell. I think there are seasons of life where I'm on a wide path that's leading me to destruction on this earth. So, so what's that's the point? Go ahead. Go ahead. I was no, saying, go ahead. What's the point of repentance, though? Is, is, so would you would you argue that we do not need to repent of our sins? No way. I would say that uh, 
you, you tell me, what's the best way to live this life? Live it in Jesus' That's, name and for God's uh, glory? Or see, I, for I, I disagree. I think if this universalism is true, who cares? Do whatever the hell you want to do, whenever you want to do it, however you want to do it, because in the end, you're going to heaven. It doesn't matter. Well, I, that, that, I, so, I, I, I think a lot more highly of God then. God is a holy, righteous God. And if yeah, I earth is a have that truth if I have that truth in my heart, then man, I'm bowing to him right now. I think that reveals I think that reveals a very I think that reveals a very clear binary theology that I was taught in college especially that a soul saved is a dollar in the bank, and that is the only real currency of the spiritual life. I think the problem with that view is that the entirety of Scripture screams against something like that. All over the Bible, you have, it is like sweet to be holy and righteous, to live in God's kingdom, to be a part of God's kingdom. Well, does that just mean it is sweet to be saved and go to hell? No, of course not. Like, think about any lesson God has ever taught you in your whole life. Just pick one. And think to yourself, well... If my eternal destination was already fixed, be it through universalism or, or predestination, then that was totally pointless. So I learned recently that my wife loves it when I go on errands with her and when I am involved in small things in her life, things that I might tend to think are boring. And let's say someone said, well, you know, Dan, no matter whether or not you go on that lesson, uh, you're still going to get laid. And then I say, okay, I'm not going on the errand, not lesson. I'm not going to go on the errand. I'm getting laid anyway, right? <laughs> no, right. I go on the errand, and there's a moment when we have a laugh, we laugh about something together, or I'm able to help her find something, or we just have time to talk about something that's going on in a friend's <laughs> life. It's but not you, like that was all for naught. You know what I mean? But you have the you have eternity for that. Like when we die and we go to heaven, we have an eternity to build that relationship. So it really doesn't matter what you do on the earth. That's a blink of the eye. I mean, it, you're just saying it doesn't matter in comparison. But if we think that every sin is infinite and that every piece of beauty and love is also infinite because it takes part in God's character, then I don't think that that holds up at all. Let's okay. get Carrie into this mix. Carrie, what do you think about all this? Um, well, I'll go back and say that the, the broad way leads to destruction and the narrow way leads to life. And we know that Jesus is life. So I think the analogy of a Christian being on the broad path, if they're truly saved, is not accurate. If they're truly saved, they're on the narrow path, but they can stumble. Um, as far as everything else, we're just kind of, sounds like everyone's just kind of shooting in the air right now. So I don't know where to come down and land. Yeah. Uh, well, let me throw another verse out there. And uh, Carrie and Jared, y'all both talked about God being just, and I agree with that. But I would say that what Jesus did there, that's, that's justice, and I don't know why that necessarily can't be applied to every human being. And again, you're talking to someone who is a hopeful universalist. I guess on paper, I'm leaning maybe a little more towards Carrie and Jared. I, I really hope that I'm wrong, but these sorts of passages does throw me for a loop, and I think that's why you have to give uh, Dan some credence. So let me just read this this verse real quick. It says, um, this is coming from 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. It says, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's talking about the church. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, if that doesn't throw you for some sort of loop, what is he talking about? I mean, what in the world is John talking about? He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I mean, for a Calvinist that believes in limited atonement, that shoots limited atonement, uh, blows that thing up. Well, what it is, is it says that Jesus is the propitiation. That means there is no other way. That doesn't mean everyone automatically has Jesus as their atoning sacrifice, but if they accept it, he is there. You know, we call that prevenient grace, I believe, or, or something akin to that, where the grace is there and waiting, but you must accept it in order for it to be applied to you. Right? See, so Jesus gives the gift, but you have to receive the gift. 
I see that, but it, it seems like the lingo here is a little bit different. It, it doesn't say, and if the world turns towards him, it, it's saying he is the atoning sacrifice, period. Not ours, but also everybody else's. Let's so. just throw a couple more out for fun. First Corinthians 15, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Okay, John 12, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Draw them all to myself, only to bat away 75% of them? I mean, this is, this is just back to my point. You can't, you can't do this. I can't do it on the universalism side either. It doesn't work to just pull um, scripture out of context. You went to context and you put everything together. Let me throw at you Matthew 25, the sheep and the goat's judgment. Why are there sheep and goats if everyone goes? The Lord says, uh, talking about the goats, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into each life eternal. That that lays it out right there. Right. That's Matthew 25. Yeah. I would say that is actually one of the passages that makes me want to lean towards annihilationism. So maybe something that would be interesting that we haven't even discussed yet here at all, and I think that might be helpful because this is a stumbling block for so many people. I have a question for you guys. If eternal conscious torment is the destination of all who are unsaved, and if all things work for the glory of God, how does eternal punishment work for God's glory? I have no idea. I'm not God. I, I can't answer that question. Well, exactly what verse are you talking about? All things work for the glory of God. Let's get very specific to the verse there. Are you going to do that for us? Are you doing that? <laughs> I'm waiting for someone to bring it to me because I'm not aware of anything oh. that they think, or at least not know those words. Well, yeah. it, regardless of, well, we could go into that particular verse. Just the idea of, like, God is just, right? Like, that's all over Scripture, so we can just, that we don't have to um, sort of cherry-pick a verse for that claim. God is just, that's all over the Bible. And a fundamental claim of monotheism in general. So... How is it just for a human being to commit a finite number of sins in their time on earth and then to be eternally consciously punished for those sins? So annihilation is one thing, is to say, you know what? I offered you love and you rejected it, and therefore you don't get to have it and exist anymore. And there is a punishment there. You're out. You said no, and okay, I'm giving you, I'm giving you what you asked for. But to say, like, it's just, it does obviously bristle against any sort of basic understanding of justice that we have, that you would have a punishment that is not only much greater than a crime, but infinitely greater than a crime. So if somebody steals a loaf of bread and we stone them to death, we would say, that doesn't fit the crime. That's not just. If someone rejects Jesus, and we stone them to death every second continually, infinitely, it's not just bigger than the crime, it's infinitely bigger than the crime. And that does seem to be a huge problem with any concept of justice that we might have in I, human language. I guess the only pushback I would have on that, Dan, is how are we as humans to really understand the gravity of sinning against an eternally righteous God. I think that there could be more than meets the eye. I mean, could could any sin against a perfectly holy, righteous, eternal God be worth eternal punishment? I mean, I don't know. I think that, that I, I, I am a little bit sympathetic to that line of reasoning, but I think then what you'd, you'd probably want to say something like the nature of the suffering and punishment of hell is is also in that realm in a way that we can't understand. But if you want to say, I don't, I don't think it's very. To me, it doesn't make a lot of sense to say we can't know how bad sinning against an eternal God is as finite people. Therefore, when we do that, we're punished eternally in a way that we can understand, which is physical pain, right? Yeah. So I think it's like, well, maybe then it's some sort of cosmic eternal punishment, right? That would make more sense using that reasoning to me. Yeah. Are there, are there script specific scripture passages that support annihilation? 
You know, I don't have them off the top of my head. It's it's a view I don't know as much about. Okay. Um, I, I'm going to do a little Googling while we talk and see if I can come up with anything. But I, I would say this, though. I, I have abandoned the belief in uh, actual fiery, burning sulfur torment um, probably 10 years ago. And believe it or not, it was through reading a very, very mainstream uh, Christian book that I was like, are, are you serious? They're not banning this from the shelf as heresy, but it's Lee Strobel's case for faith. He tackles like nine or ten of the main objections that unbelievers have to the Christian faith, and one of them is the doctrine of hell. And he interviews a uh, professor that's very conservative, biblical scholar, doctorate's degree, and all that stuff, and this guy says that there's so much um, uh, allegorical stuff in the Bible, and if you read closely, you know, hell is eternal separation from God, which is very much so uh, torment. But he said, as far as, far as real fire and real flames and real burning, he said that's that's just not even necessary. And if you if you look at all the different things, like for example, Jesus coming with a sword coming out of his mouth, you know, or the Holy Spirit came as a dove. I don't know if y'all realize this or not, but it probably wasn't a dove that actually flew into the scene when Jesus was getting baptized. I mean, there's so much of that language. I would agree that if hell exists, it's complete darkness. I mean, how, how have you seen a bunch of flames and complete darkness at the same time? Yeah, but uh, you had a burning bush, right? Yeah, but, what do you mean? You had a bush that was burning but wasn't consumed. Yeah, but that was a very narrative passage in the Bible. That was, here's what happened. I mean, this is talking about... Well, I don't understand uh, why you couldn't have a fire that doesn't produce light. Oh, I, no. That doesn't, produce, that doesn't get burned. Oh, that, that's a good point. So, I... I, do, I and in New Jerusalem, Jesus shall be the light of, light of it, right? So there's no sun, so there's no need for the sun, because Jesus will be there lighting it. So, you know, the Bible is very clear when it's being narrative and when it's using metaphors that, you know, it says light or ads when it's and when it doesn't, it's being literal unless it's a poetic passage, such as in the Psalms. Uh, but I, I think if you look at the context, you can definitely tell one way or the other. I think that we probably are a little more confident in that than we ought to be. I mean, uh, well, I, I don't know. I, I, can, I, I, can I interrupt real quick? I mean, I, I, I'm going to just say that's not right, Harry. Uh, I mean, because Proverbs 18.10 says the the name of the Lord is a fortified tower. It is a tower. No, it's not. It's a name. So, I mean, that, that right there, it didn't say is like a strong tower. It says is a tower. So I just think that you can't make this perfect distinction. I think there's some things that just like, I don't know, is that narrative or is that poetry? I mean, because I would say Proverbs, I think Christians try to get a lot of promises out of Proverbs, and some of it is just like, whoa, 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 wait a second. God can't promise that if you raise your kids uh, in an upright manner that they're definitely going to return, because I've seen a lot of parents raise their kids upright, and their kids never return. Uh, but I think it's painting a very general concept as, look, teach your kids, and you know what? There's a good chance they're going to come back, but is that a promise? I mean, for example, uh, I think one of the most overused scripture is uh, God has a plan for us to prosper us. That's actually talking to Israel. That's a specific passage to Israel, and yet Christians, we own that as our own. I would say, look at all the apostles that were tortured for their faith. Is that is that a plan to prosper them? I mean, now they're prospering in heaven, so I think you could take that scripture and say, yes, it's true universally because Christians are going to go to heaven and they're going to prosper but I, I just think it's a it's 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 a tough discussion when you really think about how we are reading God's word, and regardless of whether all of the Bible it does have, you know, black and white truths, I still think we have to admit that there's a lot of passages that we're just flat out reading wrong. Let me raise one quick point: people read wrong, but I don't think that it's impossible to know what a passage is saying. I mean, Proverbs is considered one of the poetic books, and it's very clear when you read it that. There are certain things that are used for imagery. You don't have to guess at that. And I think it's very clear, though, with your uh, example, Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run up into it and is safe, right? So that means that the name of the Lord uh, will protect us as a strong tower. And uh, if you've ever been through some serious trials in your life where you're leaning on the Word of God and you're leaning on prayer, I think you'd come away saying, you know what, that verse is absolutely true. 
even in its uh, kind of poetic form. Yeah, I mean, I, I still think though it's it's saying it's a tower. And then you just said running to it as a safe place, but it's it's not saying as it's saying is. But I, I read you, and I do agree that Proverbs does have a lot of imagery that's not necessarily taken uh, literal. Do you find that stuff, Dan, that you're looking for? Uh, no. And, and Sorry. Here's, that's right. Oh, oh, yeah. About annihilation. Is that what you're asking about? Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. Okay. So, um, it's not as clear. Like the 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 passages for universalism are, you know, are like a lot more declarative. Generally speaking, like some of the ones we mentioned earlier, like you know, all mankind will see God's salvation. That's pretty. If you take that literally, I mean. That either means that everyone is saved or everyone sees people getting saved, uh, you know, whatever. So what I'm finding is just that most of the language used, especially in the New Testament, to speak of the wicked is almost all cessation of life language. Destruction, perish, death, end, disintegration, burned up chaff, trees and weeds, destroyed house, discarded fish, chopped down tree, um, so it's compared to Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's wife turning into salt. Uh, so it, there's just a lot of language of like, they end, you know, it, it ends. And so that's not obviously any kind of open and shut case. The point is just that there is, if, if annihilation made the most sense of other things in scripture and in our theologies, um, then there is some precedent for it in the language. But it's definitely not in the primary understanding, of, you know, for sure. I'll give you two verses that disprove annihilationism right here. Um, well, again, as I said earlier, I don't think that that works, but do it anyway. Isaiah 14, 16, uh, this is the fall of Satan, which we know has to occur at the end of, at the, end of the age, right? Because Satan still has work to do in the millennium. Isaiah 14, 16, They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble and did shake kingdoms? And it goes on from there. But what you have is a description of those in hell looking at Satan after he has fallen and, and speaking about him. Is this Satan the one who shook kingdoms? Right? What point is there to that verse if, if at the end of time there is no one to look at Satan? There, there's no point. It makes no sense to have it there. And then you can also look, I believe it's in Revelation 9, we talk about the martyrs during the, the tribulation period, and uh, you know John looks and sees the souls, quote-unquote, that were slain underneath the altar. So, you know... Well, what, what you're, you're, committed to a, you're committed to a very literal a very literal reading of what could also be very figurative language. So I, I think that's fine. I don't I don't share that reading, so that doesn't bother me. Um, I don't take a literal reading of any of the first 13 billion years of this universe either, so I don't feel the need to take a literal reading of the last part of it either. I just think that the Bible is using imagery all over the place to say true things about God, his love, his plan, how he relates to humans, how he relates to evil. I, I, I affirm the truth. From what you're reading, what point is it? If you can't be certain of the truth from what you're reading, the Bible yes. is... Now we're here. Now we are here at the absolute crux of the argument. How? What does it matter if you can't be certain? I would argue not being certain is the point. The absolute, the best thing you can do is not be certain. Yeah, but if the you're not certain, you're confused. No, no, that's crazy. That's that's not true. I am definitely not certain that the house inspection that I have on Monday will go well. I am confident that it will go well. I'm not certain that it will not suddenly erupt into thunderstorms. Yeah, but we're talking about year. eternal matters. We're talking about the eternity. We're talking about God. Right, but then here's the question. What is asked of Christians or people? What is asked of us as people from God? Trust it God. is not. It is not to have certain knowledge about who is saved and who is not. It is to love God with all our hearts, love our neighbor as ourselves. That is what God asks of us. Should, should Does, here's the question: Does our certainty help with that or get in the way? In my personal experience, all I can say is: the more I have built a house of cards of certain doctrine, 
the more that has distracted me from the actual work of being like Jesus. Now, that's not maybe everyone's experience, but I can I say that very confidently in myself. Yeah, I guess the for me, one, it's the opposite. Like, if I cannot approach the word as be, saying what it means, then I am confused, I have no confidence, I don't know where to go. But you're, so, yeah, you're, I, you're confused on stuff anyway. I mean, there are things in the Bible that I'm sure confuses you, right? Yeah, but on, I think that on, on purely, like, you know, super important things, like the atoning grace of God and Jesus Christ and his, his death and resurrection, you know, those things are being chipped away at by certain people in the faith. And to me, I'm confident, I am certain in those things. Well, so, I just want to say that I'm not, I'm not one of those chipping away saying, at that. I'm not right? saying yeah. you are. No. No. And, I, and I know you're not accusing me. I'm simply right. saying, here I am saying, we agree on the Nicene Creed. And I don't need certainty. But, in fact, I feel... We're certain about that, are we? No, we're not certain about anything. I mean, what, what? not mathematically certain. Like, not 2 plus 2 equals 4 certain. Because if we were certain, then, then how do we love God? Okay, imagine... So God is always talked about as a parent in the Bible. So I like parent analogies for God to sort of make points. So imagine you've got uh, a parent who's trying to get his kid to try and take the training wheels off and ride the bike, right? And and on the one hand, the parent says, hey, do this. It's really, it's trust me, it's better. It's way more fun. You can go faster. you got to do this to really become a grown-up kid, and let's do it. I'm here. I'm going to help you. I'll, I'll hold you, right? So that's one way that God could, or the parent can get the kid to take off the training wheels. The other way is to say, hey, you see all your dolls in there, uh, little Stephanie? If you don't ride without the training wheels, mom's got the lighter and she's got the gasoline-soaked rag and they're all going to go up in two seconds here, right? Now, if the daughter chooses then to go ride the bike, we would not say she freely chose to learn how to ride the bike. We would say that she was compelled. I think it is the same thing with our certainty or our lack of certainty. You cannot compel someone to sacrificially love as Jesus loved. You can invite them. That is all you can do. And so God is constantly pursuing every human being through time, inviting us to love and to self-sacrifice. And then we sit here, and I am totally guilty of this myself, so I'm, I'm, please understand I'm not implicating you. And I sit here going, yeah, but how does it all work out? What's the system? How can I be sure of these things? And God just says, come and follow me. Come and follow me. And follow me for Jesus does not primarily mean belief. It means action. Follow my commandments. So I personally, and this is basically becoming my whole life philosophy here, but I think that certainty gets in the way for most people. And you can't, you cannot describe Christianity from without. So it doesn't, you can't say, well, here are the certain truths of Christianity. I can put them in a book or in an email and send them to somebody. They will read it and they will understand. I used this image on a previous podcast with Joey, but like, it's like trying to describe being married to your wife. You can't describe it. You have to be married to her to know what it is like. And I would argue that following Christ is the same way. So that's why I'm not so concerned with the certainty stuff. Okay, so where, where do you come come in line when it comes to the authority of Scripture? Yeah, I think that the... Before you answer that question, let me throw out there Second Timothy 3.14, Paul's talking to Timothy, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of. Paul is encouraging Timothy to continue in the doctrine that he has been assured of. I don't know about you, but if someone assures something to me, that's fairly certain. Uh, No, I don't think so at all. Uh, For instance... um, my wife calls me from work, and she's like, hey, you know, you got to get the food for small group tonight. And I go, and I assure her, I'm going. I'm getting it. That there's no kind of mathematical certainty that she knows I'm going to the store, but she has been assured. So yeah, I don't, but I don't, you're not I don't God, though. God is assuring us. Sure, but we are still, we are still finite. So I think we could all agree that basically definitely not on the regular. There may have been a few instances in the history of God's people where, you know, beyond any sort of shadow of any other explanation, you know, God beams this 
to Moses or something, but for the average Christian, as we discuss and consider how certain we can be about things, for the average Christian, we never are that kind of sure about things. I've had God give me messages, I believe so. They have proven to be true in my life, but if you held a gun to my head and said, You're, are you 100% sure? You know, I would say, no, I, I, I believe that that was God. I have evidence for that having been God. But I don't have but, mathematical certainty, ever. I, I would disagree. Let me throw out a couple more verses. I don't want to hear the answer to the question on the authority of Scripture. This is in Titus 2, verse 1, but speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is something that's full and whole. Uh, in verse 7, same chapter, in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works and doctrine showing uncorruptness. I don't know about you, but if doctrine is uncorrupted, then it is certain. Oh, man. Well, okay, first of all, I think that I know that the King James is very beautiful, but no one else has translated that word doctrine in the last couple hundred years, and I think for good reason. I think it has the kind of baggage that we think of as perfect systems of theological thought. Hey guys, I'm gonna make a I'm gonna make a very unpopular decision, but I think we have just opened the door for uh, potentially an infallibility part two, where we'll have Carrie True. and Dan back on. But here's 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 some things that I <laughs> here's what I want to end end this on is uh, I I I get to Jared and I get to uh, run this thing, so I do want to get uh, the last three questions in, and one of them is Jared cool. and Carrie. Uh, how how do you talk about certainty and then read Isaiah and and um I do have uh Carrie I do believe that as Christians there can be a level of certainty but I do believe mathematically I mean we have to all believe that when we die we're not a hundred percent sure because we've never died before but I would say as a Christian I fall in line with the guy that says Lord I believe help me with my disbelief. So I'm saying, Lord, I do believe with all my heart, man, but please help me when I doubt. But here's here's uh, Isaiah 55 and 8. What do you guys do with this? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, neither are your ways my ways. And then he even goes on to say, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. That has to mean that as human beings, Man, we don't get everything. All right, let me just say this. Let me, I, I see what you're saying, and my, my rebuttal to that would be this. I believe there is a correct, proper way to read the Bible. Do I know what that is? No. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit that gets me there. But I do believe that God is not the author of confusion, and he has a clear word, but it's my idiocy that prevents me from getting there. But through the works of the Holy Spirit, I will get there. Maybe not in my right. lifetime, maybe in eternity, but yeah, there is a proper way to read the Bible. I believe that firmly, 100%. Can I please, may I respond to that real sure. quick? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I won't go even, rebel. Even though, uh, even though I said Carrie and Jared, go ahead, Dan. Uh, no, so I just, Jared, I want to say that as someone who does not agree with you on the fundamental view of Scripture, I think that your phrasing of that is the most uh, generous and is the one that I would hope people would have who did share your view, that there is one correct reading. I, I love the humility that you don't know what that reading is, but you're striving toward it. I believe something similar about the world in general, like I believe in absolute truth. There is a truth to any propositional question, and we don't always know what the truth is. But the way that I would phrase that God is not the author of confusion, and he does have a clear message to us that we get muddled up, I would say exactly the same thing, but I would... I would steer that conversation away from doctrine, and I would steer it toward holiness and love. I would say where we get it wrong is we are very quick to listen to a word that lets us off the hook from having to actually follow Jesus. And so there is a very clear word to me in Scripture. It is to love God with all my heart, my neighbor as myself, to take up my cross, to self-sacrificially get rid of or put underneath the things that I want for the things that other people want, and I will listen to any smooth talker that I can who will convince me that I don't have to do that. Are you and so? Sir? Oh, no, of course not. <laughs> no, I wasn't joking. <laughs> no, but I'm sorry. What I mean, sorry, what I mean is the, the message is clear in the Bible. So that's what I'm saying. So it's very clear that the Bible calls us to love God with our whole heart, love our neighbor as ourselves and to pick up our cross daily and follow Christ. That's clear. I'm certain that the Bible teaches that. I guess is what I'm 
Okay. Okay. So there is there can be certainty then. Well, it's just sort of like if you if you say the Bible does not teach that we should follow Christ, it's sort of like then you're just reading a different book. Like there there just comes a point where we're just clearly not talking about Christianity anymore. And so yeah, I think that that is very obvious. But what but this conversation is about these far more technical, futuristic, otherworldly kind of claims in which I want to say we need to have way more humility. And furthermore, you can argue that it doesn't really help us love Jesus to know the facts about that. All right, Carrie, what do you do with Isaiah 55? Um, well, just I take it for face value. Uh, we don't always understand why the Lord chooses to do things a certain way, but we do know what he chooses to do because he has given it to us in his word, the Bible. So even though I may not know why, I may not know why he chose this way or why he thinks this thought. I certainly know what he has said, and that I can be certain of. All right. Well, Carrie, we're going to let you have the last word there. Now we're going to play one quick little game, and it's called the yes or no game. If you don't don't just say yes or no, then you have to go. We'll hang up on you, and Jared, that's an order. You hang up on anybody that doesn't just say yes or no. (laughs) My mouth's ready, man. I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. uh, This will be hard for me. So, guys, it's been great talking. I want to say that now. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Dan's going to get hung up on. All right. Uh, Jared, do you want everyone to go to heaven? Yes, Yes, 100%. Yes. Dan, do you want everybody to go to heaven? Yes. Harry, yes or no? Yes. All right. Carrie, do you believe that everybody on this call are born again Christians? <laughs> I have no way to know others, so I would say yes. <laughs> Dan, how about you? Are we all born again? Yes. Jared? I think Dan is a heretic. <laughs> totally, kidding. totally kidding. Yes, 100%. All right. I want to make jokes, but I'm afraid of getting hung up on. <laughs> I'm going to say yes for both of them, too. Uh, I sincerely love you guys, and I really enjoyed this discussion. And so that, that concludes our question on whether or not Christians can believe in universalism. And like I said, I'm, I'm thinking that uh, some of you that were listening that wanted us to go further in the infallibility question, even though we've tackled that subject, we'll, we'll, we'll have to tackle it again and bring Carrie and Dan on. So uh, thank you guys for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Uh, you can check us out at facebook.com, BC Pastor. You can also check out a blog post from Jack and Dan about universalism. I also want to give a shout out to the Rethinking Hell podcast. Uh, that's where Joey and I really started diving more deeply into this idea of conditional mortality. So definitely check them out. Uh, and also, please subscribe to this podcast and leave, leave a rating if you like it. If you don't like it, don't leave a rating. We definitely appreciate it. Um, the intro music was provided by our friend Dan Koch. You can check out his production music at dankoch.net. Koch is spelled K-O-C-H. And as far as I go, I really don't have a social media presence. But if you like crazy music, you can check me out at atracks, that's A-T-R-A-C-K-S, dot com, slash emo. I know it's weird, but that's where I post all my playlists. So, please join us next time.